Hi, it's Chris. I've got some exciting updates for you before we start. First, I'm thrilled to announce our first live event, and you're invited. It's June 7th in Westchester County, New York, and my guest is Jennifer Palmieri, Director of Communications for Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign and author of the New York Times' number one bestseller, Dear Madam President, an open letter to the women who will run the world. If you heard our podcast together, you know how thoughtful and funny Jennifer is. Some tickets are still available, and I'd love to see you there. Details are at chrisreback.com slash live event. That's chrisreback.com slash live event. Next item. You've heard about the Democratic Blue Wave? Now get the T-shirt. In partnership with our friends at Political Wire, we've moved into merch. Donkey, surfboard, and different colors to choose from. If you're riding the wave, I think you'll love the shirt. But you got to move quickly. Our merch trial is only available for the next 10 days at politicalwire.com slash blue wave. Do I need to remind you that Father's Day is coming up? And it's got to be Christmas season soon. The good news? There's no limit on the number of shirts you can buy. Check them out at politicalwire.com slash blue wave. That's politicalwire.com slash blue wave. Update number three. A reminder to sign up for my free newsletter at chrisreback.com. This week's bonus question for General Michael Hayden, is there a deep state? You'll want to see his answer. Maybe Donald Trump does, too. As always, signing up for the free newsletter puts you in the running for a free gift, a copy of General Hayden's powerful new book. I do a lot of research for these conversations, and the newsletter brings you behind the podcast. Just go to chrisreback.com to sign up and a chance for the book. That's chrisreback.com. Okay, that's more housekeeping than usual. Let's get to the podcast. I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations. Of the many institutions that Donald Trump has attacked, courts, Congress, media, political parties, diplomats, former presidents, perhaps the most surprising and unnerving has been the relentless attacks on our intelligence community. Even before that second day in office, the one where he stood before the 117 stars honoring the CIA's fallen and said, we should have kept Iraq's oil, claimed almost everyone in the room voted for him, and, of course, raved about the inauguration crowd size. Even before all that, the attacks were there. Why does he do it? More importantly, what's the impact on our country and our stability? General Michael Hayden has written as thorough, thoughtful, and complex an analysis as I've seen in his new book, The Assault on Intelligence, American National Security in an Age of Lies. General Hayden connects our Enlightenment-era roots, philosophy, history, science, and our post-truth insanity with the mindfulness you'd expect from a former CIA director. Oh, and his answer? A resounding nothing good. Hayden spoke frankly and directly, which shouldn't surprise, as he's also a retired United States Air Force four-star general and former director of the National Security Agency. He doesn't mince words. Before we begin, though, I want to remind you about our show's terrific sponsor, The Cook Political Report. They've been a big supporter of ours, and I really appreciate it. People who want to stay ahead of the curve turn to the Cook Political Report, and with good reason. For 30 years, the report has nailed the nation's most important election outcomes and political trends. People who make it their business to know politics make it their business to subscribe to the Cook Political Report. Just go to cookpolitical.com to sign up. That's cookpolitical.com. Okay, that's it. Here's my conversation with General Hayden. General Hayden, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Chris. 
I know not everything in life can get neatly categorized, but in reading and internalizing your powerful book, I was wondering how you meant it. Did you mean this book to be an explanation or a warning or perhaps even a call to arms? So certainly an explanation, certainly a warning, and call to arms in a, in a spiritual sense, yes. Um, you know, think, things about us, uh, things on which we have relied, I, I feel as if are under threat. And, you know, we're a, a, a pretty smart people, certainly a free people, and we need, we need to defend uh, the processes, the structures, the organizations on which we have relied for a couple of centuries. And, and I just feel as if uh, some of them are under stress right now. The part that made me really think call to arms, I'd actually originally written the question, explanation or warning, and then I got to the very end. And and it was really that last line um, you were referring to CIA officers, we may need their truth-telling to save us from ourselves. That, right. that felt like a call to arms, and, and it felt pretty dire. Well, uh, probably dire, and what I was trying to describe there was that, I mean, the, the preceding part of the sentence is we're accustomed to relying on these folks with their truth-telling with regard to foreign enemies, but now we may need their truth-telling to save us from ourselves. And, and, and that is simply pushing back against a broader culture and, frankly, an administration that seems to be moving more and more in the direction of a post-truth world, a world in which decisions are based less on evidence and data and fact and more on preference, emotion, grievance, loyalty, tribe. And, and so the, the fact-based people, and, and here intelligence certainly, because that's my lens, but journalism, science, scholarship, law enforcement, fact-based people have to stand up for these data-based views of reality and not succumb to, to alternative departure points that simply aren't based on what is real. So, so let's, let's dig into that a bit, because uh, particularly the first part of the book, when you give the context and, and the, the history of truth, and then now this post-truth world, and you identify post-truth as, I guess, word of the year in 2016 or 2017, right. one of the two. Um, you make clear that America is the product of the Enlightenment era and, you know, much of the right. finding science that you're, you're talking about right there. And um, that's, you know, that's an era uh, that, that, you know, ended years ago. Are, are we now shifting into a country that's more reflective of the times? And, and how would you describe those times? Yeah. So, so yes, we, we are. Our, our Western civilization writ large uh, we are products of the thinking of the Enlightenment, 17th century, data, experimentation, pragmatism, hypotheses, testing, and so on. Uh, we Americans are peculiarly reliant uh, on the Enlightenment because our founding fathers were scholars of the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment values, the Enlightenment approach Im Im imbues our foundational document. So, you know, although this should affect everybody in Western Europe and, and so on, it really affects us because our system of governance is, is based upon that approach to reality and data and, and evidence. And, and again, the, the Oxford Dictionary Word of the Year, 2016, post-truth, uh, decisions based on something other than evidence, feeling, preference, and and, and so on. And, and so, but by the way, post-truth, uh, 
Post-truth is is the stuff of autocrats. And and I, I you know to get to get really scary beyond the, the reference that you made to the book, I quote someone else in the book that points out that post-truth is pre-fascism because it is only the truth that allows a people to plant its feet and push back against autocracy. And so if we drift into a post-truth world, uh, we increase the dangers that will lose a lot of things really dear to us. So let me ask you a little bit about this point in time and and how we got here. And I'll ask you in depth about the intelligence, the intelligence community, Trump and current events, because certainly listeners will want to hear your views on that. But I I can't emphasize enough, one cannot come away from reading your book without the sense of history, of culture, of the intersection of the times that have led up to now with where we are now. This post-truth time that we're in and its connection perhaps to fascism. And yet we live in the most data-driven, most metrics-driven, most empirical. Data is available on everything. I can't decide what to wear in the morning without looking at the data on what color is going to drive the best emotions of the people who I'm trying to influence today. So you've spent a career analyzing the world and societies and day-to-day risks how do you come to the conclusion of how we are in a post-truth world where emotions matter at the very time when we have more data available to us than ever before? Exactly. And, and so, so what, what has happened is that you and I uh, and everyone else are overwhelmed with the data coming at us. Um, there, there, there is a certain frustration in the land about the effects of globalization, which I talk about in the book. But back to the core question of data, yeah, there's a lot of it available out there, but it's coming at us in, an, in an, a way uh, that is historically uncurated. It, it, it's, it's coming at us as a tsunami. And here's a, here's a, here's a world in, in which our technology and ambition with regard to data has gotten ahead of our law or our policy, our social norms or our education. And, and so we are, we, we are overwhelmed by data and the, the, the volume of data breaks the link between information and decision making because we throw up our hands and simply say, this is just too confusing. And so we then revert back to tribe or instinct rather than evidence-based approaches. Now, it, this could be a passing phenomenon, technically, technologically at least, as we, we educate young folks to better deal with all that information you correctly claim uh, is available. But there is so much information out there, we have great difficulty in finding out which of it is legitimate, which of it is, is not. And so uh, let, me, let me give you let me give you one concrete example I use in the book, and it, and it brings up the president. But, but, you know, so far, this conversation is not about the president. It's about the broader society, and that's correct. It's effect, not cause. But in, in one instance, um, John Dickerson from CBS was interviewing the president and pressing him on whether or not he had evidence that Barack Obama had wiretapped Trump Tower. And, and Dickerson wouldn't let it go. And clearly, the president was getting irritated. And finally, the president responded not with data, not with evidence, but with a lot of people agree with me. A lot of people are saying 
people are saying. In, in, in other words, we had just broken the link between information and belief. What the president was saying is if I can make it popular or trending, it's true enough, and I will then act on it. And, and, and that's, that's, the, that's the broader milieu, the broader context in, in which I think these things are happening. You make clear in the book that you got only an undergraduate degree in, I think it was psychology or psychology. In psychology. No, I just all I had were undergraduate courses. Not, not oh, even a oh, not even a degree. Okay, undergraduate. So, yeah. so I'm not asking you to be um, a, a psychologist or a psychiatrist, but but I am asking you to be a former head of the CIA, and you know, and and among whose roles are to make evaluations about personalities and capabilities right. and tendencies. What you just described, we've all noticed that, that, that Trump says that. And if you, when we all hear um, uh, tapes and video from him talking years ago about birther right. and, and things, that is, and is that a, is that a verbal crutch? Is that a, is that a worldview that gets turned into a verbal approach? What's, what's the, What's the why behind that as you look at it yeah. as a former head of a CIA? So I've actually had this conversation with people who, have, who actually have briefed presidents, all right? And, and, and the consensus from the group was that, you know, we've had presidents who've disagreed with us, who, who simply said, yeah, I get it. That's what you think objective reality is, but I don't. I think objective reality is this. Okay, we 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 had we had those arguments with Vice President Cheney all the time. Okay, we've also had some national leaders who've actually lied, who have chosen to ignore objective reality, although they knew it to be, and say something different. What we've never had is a president that seems often, frequently, to not use objective reality in any form as his departure point for making a decision. I tell a story in the book, and again, this is a conversation with the uh, PDB briefer. Um, it was at the time the, the, the president's daily that, briefing. The daily brief, yeah, right. thank you, sorry. Yep, no problem. Um, it was the time the president had, had talked to the Boy Scouts out in West Virginia, remember the Jamboree? And yep. he gave a speech that probably was inappropriate for 13-year-old boys, right? Yep. And there, there was criticism about it. And, and the president later said, you know, almost immediately after the criticism began, the leadership of the Boy Scouts called me and said it was the greatest speech they had ever had at their jamboree. Now, that wasn't true. We, we, I, I, that's established. The question we asked ourselves is, does he know that? Does his mind actually make that distinction between the past that happened and the past that would be useful for him at the moment. And we didn't know the answer to that question. That's, that's what, I'm, that, that's what we're, we're referring to here, kind of the detachment of the decision-making process from the evidence-based institutions, FBI, Department of Justice, CIA, NSA, that are designed to provide the basis on which we should be making decisions. Within the intelligence community, how, how widespread are the concerns that you are characterizing? Uh, look, these people do their duty. They know how to count. They, they know how the Electoral College works. They want, they want the president to succeed. But, but I, I, I do think there, there, there is this broader 
deeper concern, felt intermittently, depending on what the president tweets or says, that that what it is they do isn't always attached to what it is we decide. I, t- I talked to a career case officer, and uh, I said, so how are people feeling? And I write this in the book. And he said, well, he said, well, look, Mike, you know, nothing in life is binary or Manichaean here, but, but there are trends. And, and, and so let me give you the trends that I'm, that I'm hearing. All right. The people below decks, you know, the ones with an oar in their hand and they should just be rowing. Uh, these are the ones who are probably more newsies. OK, checking yep. um, what's happening all the time and probably doing it via their phone rather than their TV. All right. Yeah. The people below decks more than any other time in his life with the agency, and this is a decades-long veteran, are asking the question, am I still part of a good thing? And then he said the people above decks, you know, the, the, the leadership, uh, they are asking the question, and remember, this is not binary, Chris, but, but they are asking the question more than he's ever heard in the past. Does, does what I do still make a difference? Does this matter? And so that's the... That, that that's what I feel is the is is kind of the the, the emotion, uh, the attitude of the community. I mean, you know, we're not going to the barricades here or anything. It's not rebellion. It's concern. And so, what is the the role? How does the intelligence community view its role uh, with Trump? Is it safety net? Is it a guide or a, you know a, a sherpa? Is it adversary? Is it supporter enabler what what what, what's the role and how is it great 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 question and and so so what you want to do all right and 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 on a good day you're successful in creating the left and the right hand boundaries of logical legitimate policy discussion you know you rarely go in there with a syllogism and the president says well therefore we'll go do this but you do Again, trying to reflect objective reality as best you can, and we can get it wrong, but we try to do it the best we can, create the left and right-hand boundaries within which policy then is, is shaped. That, that, that's what it is we do. Now, after the president's made a decision, we then become part of the implementation as we give advice, guidance, counsel to folks who then want to go carry out the macro decision that the president has made, but but it, but at its most primal form, you you want to acquaint the president. Intelligence wants to acquaint the president with the world as it actually exists. And here and here to to round out the point, Chris, you yeah. raised earlier. Here here is a here is a president who is instinctive, intuitive, spontaneous, and with an almost preternatural self-confidence in his a priori narrative of how the world works. You see the problem? I see what you have, have described. I, and, and So now let's apply your description and, and the insights that you've made. Um, and, and again, the book is it, it's a phenomenal read, not just because of, really despite the conclusions. I mean, you make powerful and very clear conclusions, but the context and the history and the framing of everything is what, for me, really, you know, among the things that that set it apart. So let's apply all of it to some of the current events and some of the things you write about. Um, You call, you you, you say that, that Russia's attack on America and the minimal Trump administration response to it, um, you call it a national security lapse. 
And, and as I yeah. saw that, Mike, I thought to myself, is that strong enough, particularly after reading your book? I, that might be a technical characterization, but it doesn't yeah. really assign motive. Um, d- does national security lapse cover the totality of what you see happening? Yeah, maybe not. Maybe I was light. But again, you know, I, did, I didn't want this to be viewed as reflexively, relentlessly negative about the president. I mean, president the president is the way God made him. All right. And and one of the rules, iron rules of physics for intelligence is to the best of your ability, you accommodate uh, to, to the president. But what I think's happened here, Chris, is that we have this unarguable national security threat, which you just described from the Russians. But the president cannot dissociate the national security threat, which is objectively true. He cannot dissociate it from this other dynamic over here where other people, not the intel guys, but other people are using that story, that narrative, to attempt to delegitimize his election as president. And here is a case where the president can't seem to get beyond his personal concern, his personal offense that people are challenging his legitimacy, and come come over here and respond to an objectively correct analysis about what the Russians did and are continuing to do. He just can't do it. And, and that's what I was trying to describe. And a couple of current events that, uh, you know, I'm sure we'll be overwhelmed with news between the time you and I are talking about this and, <laughs> and, and it posts. That's uh, the problem with anything beyond uh, live dialogue these days. Um, but a couple of the current items are um, Trump's accusation that he was that his campaign was infiltrated by an informant. Simultaneously, yeah. Deputy uh, A.G. Rosenstein agreeing to have the inspector general do a review and also simultaneously, quasi relatedly, not relatedly, Rosenstein agreeing to share some information from the investigation uh, with other government officials and folks being concerned right. that, wait a minute, that's a, a, a real change. And how do you, what's your view on all of this? I mean, you, you kind of talk about the four stages of Trump's right, relationship. Right. And so I'm wondering, are we now clearly, are we now clearly in stage four? So what's your take on what's going on? And, and then where do you view us in terms of uh, that, that four step paradigm that you outline? Sure. So I do think we're in four. And to quickly review, uh, phase one was ignorance. The, pre- you know, the president had no government experience, didn't know about intelligence. Phase two was hostility based upon the Russian story. Phase three is inevitability. You really can't do the job without the intel guys. And then phase four, now we're into the what happens after Mueller reports out, and we're beginning to see the, the, um, the dynamics with regard to that. So what I say about what the president did on the weekend, which was direct an investigation of the investigation, um, is that I understand the Constitution. I'm not a lawyer, but I think I got a pretty good idea of the powers of the presidency. He is the chief law enforcement officer in the country. What he did was not unconstitutional. What he did was not unlawful. What he did was unprecedented because all of his predecessors have felt bound by the norms of the office and whatever the immediate concerns were, they didn't do, they never did what the president did on Sunday so as not to compromise the reality or the appearance of the independence of federal law enforcement. And the president blew through that barricade uh, at, at great speed 
on Sunday. And, and those are the kinds of concerns that I have, that we are harming the institutions and practices that we have learned over a two-plus century history keep us both free and safe. And, then that, and, and therefore, lawful, constitutional, and bad is my summary. Is Trump's effort to undermine U.S. intelligence or to impact U.S. intelligence um, and U.S. law enforcement are those linked? Do you see? Do you see? Do you agree with the underlying statement? I guess first of all, and then two, if you do, um, do you see them as linked? So, so I don't. I, I see them as linked, but but I, but I wouldn't, wouldn't say the linkage is the, the president's instinctive effort to undermine these things. What the president does, and, and Chris, you mentioned about earlier about, you know, we've all seen what the president says, what he tweets, and so on. What the president does when he is opposed is he does not, never, never does he argue the facts of the case. What he does is try to delegitimize and invalidate the opposer. All right? And so you don't have an argument about what the Russians did or didn't. What you have are political hacks running the intelligence community, uh, the FBI in tatters. Uh, and, and so, I mean, I don't think the president wakes up in the morning and says, I need to undermine the FBI or the CIA. But if those institutions are pushing back against him for whatever reason, again, he doesn't argue the facts of the case. He tries to delegitimize the institution in the eyes of the American people. And again, back to that's long-term harm to things on which we have relied for a very long time. Do you know uh, CIA Director Gina Haspel? I do. I know her, I know her uh, reasonably well. Did, did you talk with her at all during the period after uh, – at all recently? Yeah, I have. I've, I've actually participated in what's called a murder board where I got to play a senator for Gina practicing her testimony. And then we had a, we had a private conversation too. Uh, what can you share with us? Uh, she is a wonderful choice. It is no accident that the retired CIA leadership of the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump administrations all think she is the best possible choice for the job. And, and and let me tell you why I want her in the job. Uh, I, I know Gina. She's an absolute thoroughgoing professional. She has no political ambitions. She has no ambitions for higher office. When the president is in the Oval and he's having a meeting and he says something that I would judge to be outlandish, all right, and, and most of the people in the room go into what I would call north-south autobob and say, you're right, boss, you know, things like uh, we should have kept the oil in Iraq. Mm. Um Gina Haspel is the one person in the world I know that I want in that room at that moment because she will tell the president the truth. Now, General, you know when I ask what can you share with us, I mean what out of the private conversation, the one-on-one -on -one <laughs> secret stuff. <laughs> <laughs> That's in the next book. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll, I'll buy it. Based, based on this pre previous one, which I know was not your first, I'll definitely buy uh, the yeah. next one. Speaking of that, I, I – I, read part of you know job uh you know one of the one of the benefits of the job um I, I read a lot of books and assault on intelligence is flat out one of the best titles i've seen i mean the the the, the <laughs> use of so i'm going to just assume that it's yours you came up with it um uh but the the double maybe even triple entendre i found myself wondering which definition of intelligence did you mean is under assault more 
So, I mean, the one is nested inside the other. You know, the assault on intelligence is back to that kind of enlightenment approach to to data and action. And the profession of intelligence is tucked in it. And I make the point that intelligence, at least as practiced in the Western democracies, is as much a child of the enlightenment as any of us. Any other of our disciplines or arts, and and so the, the double meaning is intended. Got it. And uh, just to close out this conversation, um, kind of a, a combined thought. There was a, a line the other day. One of the uh, Pod Save America guys had, had a really great line. I mean, we, we've heard it in different contexts, but it was it was talking about uh, the these the latest Trump accusations. The ones we talked about about the, the being infiltrated and the campaign for surveillance, et cetera. Right. And, and, you know, again, a worrying that we are all boiling frogs, that the, you know, this is not normal. And you quote that uh, um, line in your book, uh, you know, that, that the definition of normalcy has so shifted that we are the boiling frogs and, and there's kind of nobody of authority. We can maybe we are saying it generally, but there's nobody of authority who's saying, man, is anyone else kind of hot? in here. So (laughs) one, how worried are you about that? And then two, I guess, ultimately, um, where does this end? How does it end? So I, um, you're right. And I do take pains in the book to repeat. I actually say several times in the book, this is not normal and we should never accept it as, as normal. Uh, Chris, there's a dynamic going on right now. So we have a president, um, I think is pushing up against the normal bounds of the office, all right, and frankly, maybe going beyond them uh, more frequently than I'm comfortable with. Constitutionally, in all meanings of that word, constitutionally, the barriers against a president who's expanding his powers should be the Congress, should be the other political branch. That is not happening. And, and what we're seeing, Chris, is the opposition to the president going beyond the norms of the office. The opposition isn't coming from the Congress. It's coming from the agencies, institutions, and departments of the executive branch. Mm. It's, it's coming from the Department of Justice, from the FBI, from the intelligence community. And then, kind of weirdness of weirdnesses, the president is attempting to enlist his party in the Congress to force the agencies of his own executive branch back into line. That's, that is not an unfair description, Chris, of the weekend or of the last couple of months. I have never seen anything like that. And, and so I end the book by simply saying, I mean, look, make the president successful. I mean, he is the legitimate president. But obviously protect your own integrity. And then I end with, but for God's sake, protect your institution. I mean, you can protect your integrity by leaving. Institutions can't leave. Institutions have to hold their ground. And I quickly add, we accommodate to all presidents. It's necessary and right. But you can't accommodate so much to any one president that you begin to undercut your legitimacy to yourself, uh, to the nation, or, or to history. And, 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 and that's where we are. And in the good news, Chris, most of the sounds you hear from this city our institutions holding their ground, not cracking. I apologize. As you were saying that, another one last question came to my mind, or one additional sure. question. Going back to your your day, you know, you're, you're, so if you're head of the CIA 
and you get a description from an officer about a country with this description, with what you've just described going on, what would your take be about that country, about its stability, about how you should react towards it or and, and, and treat it? How would you feel? Yeah. So, so there, I could actually answer this scientifically. There is a think tank in D.C., not far from where I'm sitting, called the Fund for Peace that um, ranks every country in the world every year on stability. All right. And it's got 12 categories and they assign numbers and it's, it's, it's discipline based. And, uh, you know, it's, it's not Kentucky windage. They, they actually they actually measure things. And our homeland was one of the five most worsening countries in the past couple of years when it comes to stability. Mm. So it's just not Kentucky windage and estimates and feeling this data based investigation you know, has the United States moving backward? Now, look, I mean, we're, we're not headed to Bosnia, Herzegovina and civil war here. But in terms of where it was we have been, uh, we are worsening quickly. And I let me quickly add, to be fair to everyone, and that's a trend that's lasted more than a decade. General Hayden, thank you. Thank you for your time, uh, the book, and, and, of course, for your service as well. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it, Chris. That was my conversation with General Michael Hayden. Want more from General Hayden? A reminder, sign up for my free newsletter at chrisreback.com. It has bonus insights from the general on the question, is there a deep state? Plus, sign up and you'll get a chance to win a copy of his book. My thanks to General Hayden for the conversation and you for listening. I'm Chris Reback. I'll talk with you soon.